0: Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journeying beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Anthology, a podcast exploring science fiction anthology television during TV's golden age. Um, I'm your host, Matt Hurt. Uh, you may know me from The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with two of my friends, and also The Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com, where I write about movies and TV shows. Um, so... Uh, you might be wondering why I wanted to do a solo podcast or a side project podcast or whatever you want to call this. Um, and I'll go ahead and answer that for you. I love podcasting. I've been doing it for a couple years now with, with my friends. And I'm really proud of the amount of work and the quality that I feel we put out of uh, the Obsessive viewer. But I kind of wanted to... Do something on the side. Um, I I, I know that there is a lot of podcasts devoted to certain TV shows, and I kind of wanted to try my hand at that. More specifically, I wanted to take a concept or a show and just go all out with it and explore it and and watch it. Because usually on the blog, I do episode reviews of certain TV shows and, and season reviews and And all that kind of stuff, that can get a a little time consuming and there's a little bit of a lack of interpersonal connection with an audience there. The the connection that you get from an audience with a podcast is a lot more vocal and a lot more interactive, is what I found at least. So I wanted to do a solo podcast because I wanted to see if I could do it. (laughs) Um, And that remains to be seen, obviously. But... I wanted to do something just on my own to see what, kind of, uh, what what I can do on my own. And I went through a lot of different ideas for a solo podcast, for a side project podcast. And I don't know, one of the, one of the things that stuck out to me is that Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime... Uh, all services that I have, um, there's there's a lot of television content that is all just packaged there for the viewer to consume at their own pace in full. And my immediate thought was obviously, since I'm a huge Lost fan, I would go back and watch Lost and kind of deconstruct that in podcast form, but. I don't know, I didn't really want to spend hours of my life revisiting a show that I love and know know intimately, and, know, and I know personally I wouldn't be able to really view that objectively. Um, so I decided to do a show that was something that I wasn't really familiar with, and that show ended up being Twilight Zone and the thing about it is I didn't want to do a specific twilight zone podcast. Um, instead I wanted to keep it kind of broad and just do anthology television and most notably or specifically I wanted to do sci-fi anthology television and the twilight zone fits that perfectly. (laughs) Um, so for now, what what I want this show to be, what I want Anthology to be is a podcast that has me going through the Twilight Zone for starters for the next several, 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 several episodes um, and then moving on to something like maybe The Outer Limits or more contemporary or more current Anthology television like Black Mirror and stuff like that. So I, d- I didn't want to – I didn't want to be held – specifically to The Twilight Zone, although I will be spending, I, I mapped it out, it's something like over 100 episodes deconstructing The Twilight Zone and sharing my feelings about it. Um, so you might be asking, what what is it that qualifies me to be a host of a podcast about sci-fi anthology television from TV's golden age? Um, and that's a damn good question. <laughs> um, admittedly, I, one of the things that drew me to The Twilight Zone is that it is a massive, massive icon of television. And it is, it is something that is this behemoth that, that created so much for a culture of television viewers. Like, it's, it's deeply rooted in people's, um, upbringing, and, and they, there's a strong nostalgia to Twilight Zone that resonates with a lot of people today. And that's something that I missed the boat on. Uh, Twilight Zone aired from 1959 to 1964. I was born in 1986, and so I don't have this connection to the Twilight Zone that a lot of people do. I didn't even really grow up watching reruns. I know that, um, I know that at least on sci-fi on new year's eve and new year's day they have marathons of of the show and i believe they also have um i don't know if it's sci-fi specifically but they have there's marathons on like the fourth of july so this podcast is more is is more about me discovering the show i'm gonna be as knowledgeable as i can about this but One of the main tenets of The Obsessive Viewer that that I run is that the show and the blog is about my feelings, our feelings about the entertainment that we consume, and that's something that I'm going to bring over to Anthology. This is about my reaction to the Twilight Zone, and this is how I feel about the episodes and the stories. And it's tapping in, I'm hoping to tap into the the emotional connection that's the the universal the universality of the Twilight Zone and how the stories are universally relatable to an extent. And that's kind of my goal for the podcast is to just really share my feelings about, about the Twilight Zone as I'm discovering it myself. And other anthology television as I move on. Um, and obviously with a solo podcast, it's kind of it's going to be kind of tough. I've never done this before. I've always had co-hosts to kind of kind of bounce ideas off of and discussion off of. So, if you're listening to this, please please do not shy away from contacting me with your input, your thoughts on episodes of the Twilight Zone, anything that I'm about to discuss or have discussed, anything like that. I crave feedback and I crave the interactivity of an audience. So, You'll find out where you can reach me in the show notes and in the outro and everything. But um, for now, you can uh, tweet me at ObsessiveViewer or you can email me, Matt, at com. Now, every episode of Anthology is going to cover, at least for now, uh, at least in the first three seasons of The Twilight Zone, it's going to cover two episodes per episode of the podcast. So I'll just go in um, order of when the sh- when the series aired when when the show's aired. So I'll get to the episode descriptions and episode uh, analysis and thoughts and all that in a moment, but for now I want to kind of introduce listeners to The Twilight Zone and and to kind of kind of give a little bit of background on the show, a, a little bit brief background on the show and Rod Serling. Um, first of all, The Twilight Zone aired on CBS from 1959 to 1964, and it was a massive hit. It had a weekly, an average weekly audience of close to 18 million people. And uh, one of the main things that drew people to it and was so was recognized as one of the main tenets of what The Twilight Zone was was that it had an emphasis on ordinary people, and these ordinary people entered the Twilight Zone and were surrounded by surreal environments, situations, uh, uh, otherworldly presences, stuff like that. So the emphasis on ordinary people is what really made audiences connect with the stories being told, and that gave Rod Serling and his writing team, he wrote a considerable amount of it, by the way, at least in the first season, I think it was something like 80% of the scripts of the first 36 episodes this season, I believe, uh, were written by Serling himself. Um, but they all had a foundation of, of ordinary people and, and they, that's where it really connected with audiences. And of what I've seen so far at the time of this recording, I'm about halfway through the season. Um, it's magnificent. It's, uh, it resonates so well today and we'll, I'll go into more specifics, um, as I get into the meat of the, The podcast but it's it's something that is truly even today still worth marveling at Um, a little bit of background on Rod Serling himself Um, immediately after high school he joined the army he was a paratrooper in World War two he fought in the Pacific theater. And he went to college on the GI Bill, worked in radio, uh, but he spent all of his free time working on his own writing projects and uh, kind of went the freelance route, which at the time, this is like early to mid-50s, this is when television was at – it was a great time to be a freelance writer for television. He would submit scripts. Every script he wrote, he would submit it to radios and, and uh, radio plays and, and Television, because television was populated by countless anthology um, shows that had just live performances. So he he worked tirelessly at at writing and submitting his work to various places, and it wasn't until January 1955 that his 72nd television script uh, was aired on Kraft Television Theater, and uh, that. That script was called Patterns, and it was a massive, massive hit. Earned him his first of what would end up being six Emmys, and suddenly he had just offers from everywhere. He was a massive, a big-name writer in Hollywood. And what was even more successful than Patterns was a year and a half later, uh, his his teleplay, uh, Requiem for Heavyweight, Premiered on Playhouse 90, another anthology um, show, and that was that was a big hit for him, even bigger than Patterns, and he he just continued to have success with teleplays, and eventually he kind of set his sights on making an anthology series, uh, because I think it was a lot of it was he was upset with how censored his work was, and he also knew I assume he also knew that television was changing from live broadcast to film. So in 1957, uh, Serling dug out The Time Element, which is a a script that he wrote after graduating college, and he added The Twilight Zone to the title and submitted it to CBS. Um, CBS, there was some... uh, I don't know if there was necessarily some blowback from it or anything like that, but they didn't really like it. But in November of 1958, The Time Element actually aired on Desi- Desilu Playhouse um, after more struggles behind the scenes. It actually kind of kind of got put in production kind of by the skin of its teeth. I'll, I'll do a proper episode about The Time Element at a later time, maybe a bonus episode after this season of the podcast. But The Time Element was a big success. Like That episode got more mail than any episode that season of Desert Loop Playhouse. And uh, that success actually convinced CBS to order a pilot for The Twilight Zone. Um, Serling, however, couldn't use the time element since it had already been produced, so he wrote The Happy Place, which was a script about a a, to- uh, a totalitarian government that basically executes – um, people when they turn 60. Um, I'll talk about it when I talk about, uh, the pilot episode of the Twilight Zone here in a bit. But, um, the happy place was deemed too, too depressing by CBS. And there was a meeting and they told him, they told Serling that he needs, that they, that they weren't going to do that. And then Serling just kind of looked at him and was like, all right, well, I'll write something else. And what he wrote was, where is everybody? It's, uh, it's an episode that became the first episode of the Twilight Zone, the first of, Uh, upwards of 156 episodes. Having said that, um, I'll give a brief episode summary and then kind of give a rundown of the talent involved in it. Um, Mike Ferris finds himself alone in the small town of Oakwood without recollection of his name, where he is, or who he is. Mike wanders through the town desperate to find another living soul. It starred Earl Holloman, who was 30 when he got the role in 1959. He he played a character in uh 1956's Forbidden Planet which i have i haven't seen but it's it's kind of a i don't know if it's necessarily a staple of science fiction but it is it has stood the test of time <laughs> it's it's still relevant today i think the um at the time of this recording the artcraft theater in franklin indiana is going to have a screening of it for their sci-fi or sci-frenzy uh, uh film Uh, festival in October and he was also Earl Holloman also had uh, won a best supporting actor Golden Globe for his role in the Rainmaker a a romantic western starring Burt Lancaster and Catherine Hepburn I don't know if that's necessarily stood the test of time (laughs) I had never heard of it before um, this he play, he won that best Academy Award, or wow well, he won that best supporting actor Golden Globe in 1956. The same year that he played Cook and Cook in uh, Forbidden Planet. Um, he's still, as far as I could tell, he's still alive today. But he hasn't acted since uh, 2000. So I'm I'm not sure uh, if he's just retired or 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 what. Um, the episode was written by Rod Sterling, which I'll I'll get into. I feel like he. Is deserving of, of an entire episode. I haven't had the time to really dive into the the research of of Serling, but the director of this episode was Robert Stevens. He directed two episodes of Twilight Zone and forty four episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, for which he actually won an Emmy in nineteen fifty eight. Um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was a uh, a, a crime um, or suspense anthology series the anthology series apparently were all the craze back in, back in these days uh, back in the late 50s early 60s um, I actually thought about doing an Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, spinoff podcast of Obsessive Viewer and it would have been called Obsessive Viewer Presents Alfred Hitchcock Presents a podcast presented by Matt Hart all um, that in a laugh track in editing my feelings on this episode as an obsessive viewer it's incredibly ballsy and very impressive um once again the 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 subject matter of this episode is that this guy is alone in this in this deserted town, and throughout the entire course of events, he slowly loses his sanity and uh, the end of the episode reveals that he 's actually in in the air force he 's an astronaut in training, and this entire scenario is a manif- manifestation of his brain. In dealing with long-term isolation, I think it's 484 hours of of isolation in this small box—about two and a half weeks worth of time he he's spent here, and his mind manifested this this thing. It's all for test piloting, or it's all it's all a test for um, uh, for for space mission for manned missions to the moon, which I'll get to that in a moment. But as a viewer, as the way that the storyline plays out and the way that the episode itself goes through it's as i said it's impressive and it's incredibly ballsy because the majority of the episode actually relies on holloman's performance and because he's he's literally the only character on screen throughout um about twenty-two minutes of the twenty-five minute runtime. And uh the idea of opening a series with this kind of nuanced story storyline, this kind of nuanced story on screen with just one character, I mean it, it saves money, I'm I'm sure, but and it's and I assume it would be a relatively easy shoot, but it's also I mean, if the audience hadn't liked his performance, the entire show would have been just in complete jeopardy. And I, I can really respect that as an art, artistic choice from Serling and, and his producers and his writers. Um, and I will say that that Mike, the the character, who actually goes without name until about the fif- 15, 18-minute mark, maybe, he is incredibly likable. Um, Holloman's performance is he 's got this affability to him that is kind of reinforced through the through the screenwriting through the through the actual script because i mean throughout throughout the episode he turns the cafe sign after he after he leaves it he turns it to closed and he tries hard not to startle the mannequin when he when he comes across a mannequin um, he, he kind of has this very human um, very personable personality on screen when he's interacting with with actually no one, but uh, these little little pieces kind of make you really root for him when he has that conversation with himself in the in the uh, I guess soda shop where he's making a where he's making a sundae. It's you kind of see where he is coming from as a person who's terrified, but he's also kind of not necessarily making the best of a bad situation because he doesn't make the best of it because it's it's a horrible situation but he has this this aura about him where he's having a conversation with his mirror image saying that you know I'm sorry I I don't recognize you your face your face looks vaguely familiar but I don't I don't got your name he's kind of it it makes it really easy for the audience to stand behind him and root for him to overcome whatever the hell is going on <laughs> and even when he finds the mannequin one of the one of my favorite scenes of the episode is where he finds the mannequin after he realizes that she 's a mannequin um, he talks to her and he kind of jokes with with her um, with this inanimate object and it's he apologizes for startling her and it 's really interesting it's it 's a duality in that scene where he's he 's slowly losing control he's he's lo- he 's almost i mean arguably he 's lost control at that point but he 's also he's also got a sense of humor about it. Like he's, he's kind of humoring himself to, you know, not lose it while he's slowly losing it. Um, And that kind of, that kind of storytelling, uh, the way that that kind of unfolds through the storytelling as the, as this, as the episode progresses, like the story itself Relies on slow-building tension, and I absolutely love how the camera matches that because the climax, where once once Mike goes into the theater where he sees he sees a postage or, or a uh, a poster. Outside of the theater for um a movie called Battle it 's it 's a it 's an air force movie, and he like that 's when it kind of clicks with him he's he he 's in the air force he has some relation to the air force and he 's really excited because that 's the first time he 's had any hint of who he is and it 's worth noting that 's at about the fifteen minute mark of the episode so up until that point we 've had fifteen minutes of just this guy wandering around and most if not all of the charm of that is that he is so likable, and he his performance is so is so strong in that in that he has complete control over his character as his character is losing control, and that 's a performance that I really really appreciate and so once he finds out that he once he goes into the theater he's, he's you know he's he 's had a breakthrough he 's running through and he 's trying to find. Um, someone to share this breakthrough with but he can't find it and this is when he's starting to lose more control and that's when the episode and the storyline itself kind of starts playing with this uh into a, a veering into a surreal into surreal territory like we had a little bit of that when he was at the phone booth earlier in the episode he um he goes into the phone booth because the phone rings and there's no answer, but this is where it kind of really goes. Just it ratchets uh, it ratchets up, and the climax is uh, where he sees the the film playing, and he runs up to the projection booth and doesn't find anyone. Um, and what I really appreciate this is after he finds that there's no one in the projection booth, he runs down the stairs. And this is my this is by far my favorite scene of the episode where you see him, the camera is static, and you see him running down the stairs and running toward uh, the camera, and then he just smashes right into a mirror. So what the camera was doing was actually was the camera was static on a mirror, and then it shatters when he goes in. It's a very disorienting kind of... Um, sequence it's a startling and i mean it might be a little bit of a cheap a cheap scare but it's also a very very startling scene for the viewer and from there it seems like the entire climax of the episode is filmed uh almost entirely from skewed angles with with a score that just builds and just assaults the viewer until he's until mike is running through the town and he finds the uh he, I think he collapses, and he sees he sees the, the eye because he's in front of the optometrist, um, and he's you know he's screaming because he he thinks someone's watching him. This is where he's lost his mind, and then he hits a call button or he hits the uh, walkway button on the, um, uh, the the crosswalk, and that's when people the the people in charge of the isolation booth kind of take him out, and it's. I just I love the way that the story unfolds that 's what I keep coming back to is that it 's such a such a natural progression and it 's played so well by by Holloman that it's it 's hard not to get really really invested in his character, even though not only does he not know anything about himself, we as the viewer have no idea what what 's going on we have no context for who he is or what he is. We just have these these little hints that he is at heart, a good person and someone that we can root for as he slowly descends into this kind of madness. So that's how I felt about, uh, where is everybody as a viewer? And I must say that this episode was such an awesome, in entry point to the twilight zone it's very it's like i said it's very nuanced but it's it's very approachable and and most of that approachableness that approachable factor is based on Holloman's performance and then the incredibly sharp writing so next i just want to touch briefly on kind of the historical and cultural context of it there's reference to a bomb uh Mike kind of contemplates whether there was an atomic bomb at one point. And I thought that that was incredibly poignant of the time because this aired in 1950, uh, 1959, like late fifties before, before the sixties. And this is, you know, that was from everything that I've read very much on the conscious, uh, the cultural consciousness was the idea of nuclear winter and, and, um, an apocalyptic event and, and stuff. So I thought that that was a very, that I have no, obviously I have no context for this. I have no idea how audiences might have felt when this aired, but I can only imagine that seeing this kind of scenario play out, like before you find out what the actual deal is. I mean, it, it seems very adaptable that, that this this scenario could be an apocalyptic event brought on by a nuclear bomb and that's it, it's a it's a terrifying thought and it's even more terrifying when you're it, to imagine it as someone in that time in that in that era so i thought that that was very uh i wouldn't say it was a cheap shot but it was it gave a lot of really good atmosphere to to the episode and another thing that is really noteworthy and kind of on the opposite side of, of things here, is that uh, that Mike, in the episode at the end, it's revealed that he's training for space flight, for, for a manned mission to the moon. Uh, the episode actually closes with him looking up at the moon and telling telling the moon that to uh, hang tight because he's, he's coming for it. And it's interesting to note because this aired in 1959. This was, uh, like, John F. Kennedy made his speech about... Uh, uh, about putting a man on the moon in 1962. And this was a couple years before uh, uh, the Russians put uh, the first person in space on April twelfth, 1961. And also this uh, this episode aired two years after the Russians launched Sputnik. So it was kind of in the midst of the space race before... You know, we really had, from from my limited historical knowledge, I, I must preface this, uh, before we had our kind of ducks in a row <laughs> as far as space travel was. So I thought that was really interesting and, and kind of kind of hopeful in, in a certain extent, to a certain extent. I mean, it's it's one thing to imagine that we're putting someone on on the moon at, at that point in time but it's another thing to uh, this may have been more careless or or more bleak than I'm giving it credit for because it shows that the isolation of of humanity uh, like isolating humans is not healthy and and putting a, a a man into space is going to just destroy his sanity and i think that that's really the important thing to focus on now that i think about it but i mean i can 't help but, as a fan of space travel, I kind of want to look on the bright side of things, and I want to see that this is, I, w- I want this to be a positive that that okay rod Serling wanted <laughs> he believed that you know you know there was there was an effort to put a man on the moon I, I, I guess that's – i mean it 's a stretch because it is i 'm trying not to look at the negatives of it and I, and I wholeheartedly uh, admit that just as a fan of space travel but uh, the pessimist in me does does recognize that this is a bleak look at what the space race and what putting a putting a man in isolation into space could do to his humanity and uh that's that's really kind of depressing <laughs> to be frank also a little bit of trivia about this episode to kind of close out this, this this uh this discussion of the episode uh the town square set. And this is something that I, I noticed. It, it was an interesting thing. It's, it was later used in the Back to the Future, Back to the Future movies. It was, it was, a, it was the, that was the set used in Back to the Future in the eighties. And it's funny because watching this episode when when I first saw it, I kind of I recognized the set. I recognized the atmosphere, but I I couldn't place it. I couldn't place where it was. And then when I read this trivia, I was like, of course, that's Hill Valley. What what what? Why didn't I notice that? But it's it's very noticeable when you go back and rewatch it. I've watched it a couple times now and it's it's very much noticeable and it's kind of kind of fun to imagine that it may be in the same universe, although that's a stretch. And another interesting piece of trivia is that Earl Holliman had actually suggested that his character uh, tear out a page in the phone book in the, in the phone booth scene and then find it in his pocket at the end and rod sterling told told him that executives wanted the show or told uh, interviewer in, in later interviews said that executives wanted the show to be more grounded in reality but apparently this ending is later used uh used later in the series for another episode i'm i'm actually looking forward I'm looking forward to seeing that play out because I kind of like that. I, I really appreciate where is everybody for going the kind of kind of natural route and, and kind of really grounding it in reality, the realistic route. But I'm really interested in seeing a more metaphysical or more uh, surreal and paranormal even uh, things play out throughout the Twilight Zone. Also another piece of trivia is that this was the first episode – Of the series, but Sterling had actually written an episode before this called The Happy Place. And in it, it was about a society where people are executed when they reach the age of 60. Uh, Pretty bleak, Rod. Uh, It was deemed too depressing and ultimately scrapped. And this makes me really want to see Logan's Run. Um, I've never seen it, so I'm, I might have to go, go see it. But I I think that that would be a very interesting Twilight Zone episode. I don't know if it was ever reused or or anything like that. But like I said, it makes me want to see Logan's run, and I will see it eventually. But I, I think that that could have been an interesting, an interesting episode of the Twilight Zone. Not necessarily an interesting first episode, because, as I said before, the bleakness of man... Be coming, man losing his sanity in an effort to go to space is is a bleak affair in its own right and this would have been probably um, i hate to side with studio executives um but i think that they made the right call for not at least opening the series with this with this episode with the happy place because it would have been it would have been too too bleak way too bleak um, and then the final piece of trivia that I have for this episode is that uh, Earl Holliman actually had the flu while filming this, which makes me respect his performance all the more because you really would not think think it that he would that he had the flu during filming, and to see that he to see him give such a strong performance in an episode that is completely dependent on his on his charisma and on his reaction to situ- to the situation that he's in to see him battle that or to see him to see him, to see him execute that so well while also compromised by his health <laughs> uh, is really really fascinating and really impressive to me as a viewer before we move on to the next episode, here's a highlight from the latest episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I co-host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Uh, here you go. Far too much, really. Far too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the season four became this whole different beast, and like the timeline got all screwed up with one of the characters' kids, and it was kind of like yeah. they just didn't really care about anything. But um, I, I think I think this show, if it were done. We say this about almost every network show. If it were on cable and it had 13, 13 episode seasons uh, and it were planned out like good shows are supposed to be for five seasons, it mm-hmm. could have been a very solid, fun show and yeah. could have maintained some form of levity and uh, quality over five seasons, I mm-hmm. think. All right, you can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, and at any any podcast directory and at ObsessiveViewer.com So the second episode of The Twilight Zone and the second episode of this inaugural episode of Anthology is called One for the Angels and here's a brief summary to kind of jog your memory if you haven't seen it yet at the time of this recording it is available on uh, Netflix and also on Hulu. Uh, when death arrives to claim pitch man Lou Bookman, the man successfully bargains for more time. However, his deal doesn't go the way he imagined. Um, this episode stars Ed Wynn as, uh, as Lou Bookman. Uh, Wynn was a star co- star comedian in vaudeville who turned to acting at the insistence of actually his son, Kenan Wynn. Uh, Ed's screen career had kind of a mix of com- comedy and drama. Um, his most notable roles were as Uncle Albert and Mary Poppins and his 1956 performance as Army in Requiem for Heavyweight, which was the second episode of Playhouse 90, which was a uh, live drama anthology series, uh, which is a kind of – it's a genre of television that I'm not familiar with, the live drama anthology series. I, from what I understand, it's basically um, – Writers wrote plays, and then the plays were—I guess—the stage performances were were directed and screened on television. That's my understanding of it. If someone listening has has uh, a better or more accurate description of what a live drama anthology series is, please, please contact me and correct me. Um, anyway, Requiem was actually also written by Rod Serling. Uh, the episode actually won six award- six Emmy Awards, including Best Direction, Best Teleplay by Serling, and Best Single Program of the Year. <laughs> it's particularly worth mentioning that Serling also got the first Peabody Award for television writing for Requiem for a Heavyweight um, and that's that's really fascinating. Uh, I believe that you can find Requiem for Heavyweight in its entirety on YouTube. I'll uh, if if I can dig it up, I'll throw the link in the show notes to this episode. Co-starring in this episode with. Uh, Mr. Wynn, is Murray Hamilton, who was a character actor with 156 TV and film acting credits throughout his career. He plays Death in this episode, and um, it's worth noting also that his that his various roles included um, the role of the mayor in Jaws One and Two, uh, Father Ryan in the Amityville Horror, and Mr. Robinson in The Graduate. And he plays he plays Death in this episode, and it's so so good (laughs) um his interplay between with him and is just really really satisfying and it's really entertaining to see them kind of play off each other so eloquently and so well um in terms of of the subject matter of it and i'll go i'll go ahead and use that to leapfrog into my feelings as a viewer on this episode um so basically, the entire episode is is Edwin's character, Lou Bookman, um, kind of trying to bargain for his life with with death. And um, it's worth noting the the actual only historical slash cultural context I have with this episode is that this episode actually aired uh, two years before. Um, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Uh, two years before this episode aired, Ing- Ingmar Bergman's *The Seventh Seal* was released, and in the movie, a man's fate rests on a game of chess. He- chess he plays with the Grim Reaper. I haven't seen it, but it's available on uh, Hulu Plus um, if you have uh, that, because it's part of the Criterion Collection. Um, it's one of the one of the one of the most popular movies and one of the most well respected movies that I've that I know of. And it's just it's a gap movie for me. Um, also, before I get to my feelings as a viewer, this episode was directed by Robert Parrish. Uh, it's actually his first of three episodes of the Twilight Zone that he went that he would direct. Uh, before turning his sights on directing, though, he was uh, an accomplished editor. Uh, he actually won an Academy Award for editing um, a movie in 1947 called Body and Soul, which was a uh, boxing noir film starring John Garfield. Um, which is interesting because actually Rod Serling had a uh, because because for Heavyweight is about boxing as well. Um, anyway, my feelings as a viewer on uh, the episode one one for the Angels. Um, my immediate reaction when when, when rewatching this episode um, prior to this recording was, man, this episode is just phenomenal. It's uh, Edwin is is just really endearing as an old man who isn't ready to give up his life but is ready to admit or, or is I guess a little saddened to admit that he doesn't have much of a life to give up and I mean he's at the, in the episode it's revealed that he's in his late 60s he's, he's just basically a pitch man he, he sells, uh, sells items in a little case uh, to people walking, walking around town and he's got – this is another episode where the writing really makes us feel for the protagonist because they show him as this – I mean, granted, he goes, on to, he goes on to try to trick death and try to buy more time for himself but with disastrous consequences. But he's so endearing in, in the way that he's portrayed by Wynn and it's, it's kind of this delicate balance between comedy and, and drama, which is what his career was known for. Edwin's career was known for is that he is so, he's so good with the children in this episode. There's, there's a bunch of kids, um, outside the building where he lives that, that kind of flock to him when he comes home from a busy day of, of trying to sell stuff on the street and the kids like, like he, it's kind of shown that he's, he's got some kind of, uh, a rapport with the kids and they have kind of a standing like okay we're gonna they're gonna have ice cream after after the kids have their supper and and seeing that this is a regular thing is shows that the um parents of the kids don't mind it or anything like that there's nothing nefarious with it there's nothing malicious or anything it's just this old man who really he doesn't have a family of his own but his his time is spent with with kids who adore him as if they they as if he was uh, their grandparent And that's something that really made me immediately root for Lou Bookman. And once he is introduced to death, it's really – it's really not – I wouldn't say heart-wrenching it's it's tense it's suspenseful to see him try to bargain for more time and it's he's a bit he's a bit slow on the uptake on it and what I love about Hamilton's performance of, of as death is that he has this kind of like this kind of malaise about him or this kind of this kind of like okay Mr. Bookman here's here's all the stuff I'm I'm death I'm going to you're you're gonna accompany me at midnight, and it's kind of this kind of matter of fact way. And when it clicks for for Lou that he's to die that night, um, he's you know he obviously goes through the various stages, and he he kind of tries to bargain for more time. And and Hamilton's character uh, death has a uh, very nice line where he's like, no, no one no one's really ready to go when when it's their time, and he kind of. Kind of tells him to look on the bright side and say like, "Hey, you're one of the lucky ones. You're you've you've got the uh, your your precognitive death that you know you know ahead of time. You have time to put your affairs in order and all that stuff. And you're not like think of the people who have who come to a grisly death or a grisly end in a violent accident. Like kind of trying to show him perspective. And it's kind of this. It's delivered with this." As I said, like kind of a kind of a malaise, but it's also kind of this like, okay, I'm I'm kinda of, I'm practiced at this. I'm I'm death. I've been doing this for a long time, but he is not without his um without his compassion, which is a strange thing to say about the character of death. <laughs> but it's endearing nonetheless and, and having that that kind of performance in a death character playing off of an endearing old man character who is both he's both he's not belligerent in, in trying to get his way or trying trying to get more time or anything like that, but he is he's endearing in that he I as a viewer connected with his pleas with death. Like he tries to he, uh, death goes on to tell him that he, that he's got a few options for, for why he can stay. And there's extenuating circumstances. The one that he chooses that he has no, um, that he has unfinished business of a, of a, I can't remember the phrasing of, of a significant nature. And, uh, Lou goes through, a a couple different examples of unfinished business like oh i've i've never ridden in a helicopter before um i i need to do that before i die and then death is death kind of laughs him off and kind of a pleasant kind of laugh he's like no no that's not going to cut it mr bookman and then finally he settles on he wants to make a pitch a, a final pitch like uh the One that the the one a pitch that would make the skies open a pitch for the angels, and that's where after a bit of convincing that's where death kind of you know lets him be and it's like okay Mr. Bookman I'll let you do that and then, <laughs> and then there's probably one of the it's a it's a a really nice like outward piece of humor in this episode is that the second that that they make the deal. Uh, Lou shuts the door in Death's face and is like, nope, oh, all, right, all right, I'm never going to make a pitch again. And uh, it's kind of this its this interesting situation in which hes he feels like he's fooled Death. And he's so cocky about it because he just outright tells tells him through the door. He's like, nope, never going to make a pitch again. Nope, done. Uh, I've got plenty of time left. Uh, but Death isn't having it. And this is where it, it kind of takes a twisted... The story takes such a twisted turn is that not only like like death death is forced to make an adjustment, and one of the kids that Lou is is friends with um, ends up getting hit by a car and she 's on her deathbed and she has until midnight to either pass through the pain or pass through the pass through the situation to be to be good or to be to be healthy again or she's going to die which death has to meet his appointment to get her at midnight so the episode ends and this is where the this is where the episode takes a turn that really spoke to me as a viewer and something that i really appreciated is that the show takes takes it to where it's about 12 uh, 15 minutes until midnight where uh where Lou is waiting for death to show up for Maggie, the, the girl that's been injured. And what happens is Lou wants to distract him. And what I love about this, I love the way that the storyline plays out because he wants to, he needs to distract him because it's set or, uh, the, the situation is set where, uh, death needs to make his appointment to, to kill this girl, uh, by midnight. And what I love about this is that there's a scene where um Lou decides to distract him and he starts taking out his his chest of of things that he's that he sells on the street and Hamilton gets this look on his face of just bemusement he's amused by it, and he's he's kind of like there's a knowing it's not outwardly spelled out, and even in a few minutes it's actually kind of taken back a little bit but there's a knowing glare that hamilton gives to um win as as lou is getting all the uh, all the stuff out and it's this knowing glare that tells me as a viewer that that death he maybe he's maybe he's somewhat compassionate or maybe he doesn't really care but it's this thing where death knows okay lou is gonna pitch to him and it's maybe it's maybe it's amusement at seeing a man doing what he loved, and maybe he's not really seeing the full scale of it. But what he's doing is he's doing his pitch to the angel, to, to a pitch for the angels, which I don't know. Like uh, you don't really know as Lou is doing it whether or not he's. Cog- uh, cognizant of this but by the end you know because there's a there's a wonderful moment where he's he's won over death death has bought all of his stuff and he's he's like ex, he's just exhausted and then he realizes oh you made me miss my appointment i uh you made me miss it I, i'm late do you, do you know what you've done and then there's just this wonderful it closes on such a wonderful scene where um hamilton or, or lou says like that's that's the greatest pitch I've ever done it's one that opened the skies and it's a pitch for the angels and then he kind of quietly packs up his stuff he says I'm ready and then they walk over and what I love about this there's there's a there's a bit of a button on the end of the episode where Lou Lou and Death are walking side by side and then Lou stops and he's like hang on one second I forgot something. And in that moment, you kind of think for just a brief second, you think that Lou is going to make a run for it and that he's he's going to try to trick death again. But what he does is he grabs his case. And this is something that resonated with me as a viewer because he's so passionate about selling. He's a salesman and he's, he's a pitchman. And so he grabs his case, he packs it up, and then death looks at him and he's like, that? And then and then lose like yeah people people up there might need might need something and then he's and then he just pauses and he's like up there right and then death is like up there mr Bookman. and it's just it's so interesting to me to see a character who is dying an old compassionate man who seemed a little regretful of a life kind of poorly poorly spent he's alone he has no family anything like that but seeing him reach, reach a point of contentment with his life and the knowledge that he's saved a young girl's life in the process is so just beautiful. I mean it's not the downer ending of a Twilight Zone or it's not the signature Twilight Zone twist. It's just a very human story about really recognizing your fate and embracing death in a way that, that I wouldn't have expected from a Twilight Zone episode. And it's something that I really, really, really loved, and I, it really resonated with me. I don't know if I would say that uh, One for the Angels is necessarily the better episode of these two, but it's, it really resonated me with me. And both of these episodes really resonated with me as as a viewer and as someone who – it it made me – Think a little bit, uh, take a little bit of an introspective uh, approach, and it made me relate to these characters in in ways that I couldn't really fathom beforehand. Like I I kind of, I didn't question my mortality, but I kind of thought like it, it. It made me have an emotional attachment to the characters in both in both Where Is Everybody and One for the Angels. It made me have this emotional attachment to these characters and made me wonder and ponder for a moment just what. I would do in their situations, and it's it's something that's that's a skill set that um, I hope to see more of as, as we go on with the Twilight Zone. So, well, that's basically all I've got for you this week or this episode. Again, this is a little rough. I apologize, but I hope that you guys enjoyed it, and you can find the home of Anthology Podcast is at anthologypod.com. And I'll have a pre-recorded outro that I'll tack on to this this episode. So I want to thank you guys for listening to me blather on about The Twilight Zone and Where Is Everybody and One for the Angels. And I hope to see you guys next episode in which I will be discussing episodes 3 and 4 of The Twilight Zone, which are Mr. Denton on Doomsday and The 16mm Shrine. Uh, Both are... Well, we'll, I'll save that for next time. So thank you guys for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or you can tweet me at Obsessive Viewer and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out the Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at ObsessiveViewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash Obsessive And check out obsessivebookner.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.